great to see you today. I've got to confess, the last um, 10 weeks, um, we, uh, well, so we've been live, uh, we were live last week, uh, but the previous weeks before that, we were coming up here and we were taping on uh, Thursday morning or Thursday afternoon. And I'll tell you, I got really uh, spoiled by being able to yell, cut, Say, man, I want to do that over again, and uh, but live doesn't uh, uh, doesn't allow for that. But so, if for some reason I, you see me wander into a cul-de-sac I can't get out of, and I somehow yell "cut," you'll know what I'm doing. All right. Um, if you've got your Bibles, go to Esther chapter four. We've been in Esther the last couple of weeks, and I'll, um, I'll I'll sort of summarize Esther for you before we get into chapter four. But we were introduced at the very beginning of Esther to this uh, to this great king. Now we said that the one thing about Esther that's unique is there's no mention of God or, or miracles or um, prayer. This morning we'll see that they they're fasting, they're wailing, they're lamenting. These are biblical words. But there's no, there's no real prayer, there's no miracles, there's no word from God in this book to Esther. And, and we argue that this is very likely the author's design. He, on purpose, is doing all that he can to, to not mention God. Although we, we begin to see as the story sort of unfolds and we're drawn into the story, that the unseen God, the invisible God, is, is all over this story. Well, the author opens up, the, the writer, and he opens up and he begins to introduce us to this all-powerful king, Ahasuerus. He's also known in history as Xerxes. And he um, is there and he's holding a banquet and he has command over the kingdom and command over the people and command over everything except for his queen, Vashti. And in a a drunken and unreasonable request. He in, you know, wants her to come and, and he wants to exploit and display her beauty to all those that are his guests and she refuses him. And so he has her uh, removed. He exiles her. Well, it creates the crisis in chapter 2 that now the king has no queen. And so what they do is they do this Miss Persia pageant. And they go around and they uh, procure all the, the young and the beautiful women in the kingdom. And they come put them through a year of beauty school to spend in preparation to spend one night with the king. And the idea that at some point the king would, would find a woman and he would make her the queen. Well, Enter Esther, who we find is being raised by her cousin Mordecai because she's an orphan. Her parents were killed. She's Jewish. And so it means that she's living in exile. She's, she's part of the group of people that were exiled to Babylon when Babylon came and overthrew Israel. But yet, when Persia came to power and, a, and, a, and the king Cyrus, who's probably the grandfather of, of Xerxes had sent the people back if they wanted to go, and yet they're here are these people, these Jews that are still living in Persia, still living exiled, foreigners and exiles, and probably in many ways estranged from their people. Well, through a series of events, Esther's chosen, she's beautiful, she prepares, she spends her night with the king, and the king finds favor with her and ends up making uh, Esther the queen. 
Well, at the end of chapter 2, there is a conspiracy that Mordecai, who is her cousin who raised her, he's standing at the, uh, the gate, uh, the city gate, and he uncovers this conspiracy, this coup that was going to, uh, these two uh, servants of the king that were going to overthrow the king. They didn't like how things were going. Mordecai discovers it. He tells the queen. The queen tells the king. They investigate it. They find that the um, allegations are true. Uh, they uh, put the two men to death, and it gets recorded in the Chronicles, and nothing else is said about it. And Mordecai seemingly goes unrewarded for his loyalty, and then in chapter 3 it opens up, and the king's going to appoint himself a new kind of chief of staff, and you, you kind of expect it to be Mordecai, but it's not. It's a man named Haman. And he's introduced to us very cleverly in the, in the writing as one who is an Agagite. And the writer is saying, this one descends from a guy named King Agag. Well, King Agag was the enemy, the Amalekites. They were the enemies of the Jews. And in fact, uh, King Saul uh, went up against the Agagites, and King Agite, or King Agag, he ends up defeating him. and doesn't do everything the Lord says for him to do. In fact, it begins the, the beginning of Saul's downfall. But you find in Mordecai's genealogy that Mordecai is a direct descendant of Saul. In fact, it says he's from Kish. In fact, Saul's father is Kish. And here you have Haman, and he's introduced as one who is a descendant of Agag. And here this story is being played out again centuries later. To call Haman an Agagite is really to say about him that he is an enemy of the Jews. That's the way the text begins to talk. Well, um, Haman is appointed to this position. He is uh, a command from the king comes along with it that everybody who's in his presence ought to bow and pay him homage. But Mordecai isn't going to do any such thing. And while Haman is living and riding high and all of this new honor and all of this new glory, he finds this one thorn in his side, Mordecai, and it begins to ruin everything good about his new situation. So much so that he has a hatred for Mordecai that extends that he decides instead of just punishing or killing Mordecai, he's going to kill all the Jews. And so in chapter 3, it goes about his presentation to the king, and then ultimately writing an edict and, and, and setting a day almost one year out that everyone in the kingdom will be able to take up arms for the purpose of destroying and annihilating and killing and plundering all the Jews. And the text goes on that the edict says, even the women and the children... And so that's where we are when we end uh, chapter 3. In fact, uh, the, end, the end of chapter 3 ends with uh, Haman and the king in the palace sitting down for a drink while the entire city, the capital, has been thrown into confusion. And so that's where we are. We're in chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, and I'll pick up the story here. And it says this, that when Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. And he went up to the entrance of the king's gate. This is different than the city gate. This is the gate that would lead into the palace, the king's gate. 
For no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province where the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. What's well, an entirely different scene than what's at the end of chapter 3. In chapter 3, it ends with the king and Haman enjoying a drink and enjoying this, this thing that they have accomplished. The city was thrown into confusion, and sort of there's this general um, uh, dismay that it is met with. But here at the beginning of 4, the reaction against the Jews, the reaction of this edict is personalized. It gets specific. It gets intimate. It's, it's this personal grief, and Haman feels it. And not only, I mean, not only uh, Mordecai feels it, but not only Mordecai, but it's a shared grief you find in, in, in verse 3. All of the Jews find themselves wailing and lamenting. See, Mordecai is in sackcloth and ashes. It was common in the ancient Near East. It doesn't necessarily mean he was doing anything biblical. He was doing something historical. Mordecai has gone into the city by the king's gate. He's loud. He's, he's wailing. It's, it's public, visible grief. I mean, Mordecai is making a scene right there at the doorway of the palace. Maybe he's there to get the king's attention, maybe to get Esther's attention. Nonetheless, he's attracting attention, and he wants to. It's a dramatic scene, and the grief that he feels is great. It's it's a grief, though, that's proportional. It's the right response. And it's so different than, than uh, Xerxes, you know, who, who so over-exaggerates this one little offense to him. It's so different than Haman's response when he's, uh, you know, everyone bows down and everyone pays homage except for this one man. And it totally, his, his response is so exaggerated. Here, Mordecai's response, it's proportional. It's Right. You see, you get the sense that he wants to barge into the castle. He wants to uh, shout the injustice. He wants something done, but he would be forbidden to enter. His clothes are wrong. His, his mood is wrong. See, it's possible Mordecai stopped outside of the gate because the king wouldn't allow problems into the palace. He didn't want to be bothered by anybody else's pain. He didn't want interruptions or, or, or um, um, inconveniences. And the truth is, the king didn't care for anybody other than himself or anything other than his own comfort. could be that Mordecai is reacting the way he is, not just because of the Jews, although it would be proportional in that. It may be that Mordecai, Mordecai feels personally responsible. So he's a man with connections. He, he's well-informed because of his position. And whatever it was, he was a man that was in the know. And maybe he pieced together that his actions, his refusal to bow to Haman, his refusal to pay him homage, that he's responsible for this crisis. Nonetheless, there he is. And Esther is going to be made aware. Look, look at verse 4. It says, when Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, 
who had been appointed to a tender and, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and, and why it was. See, when Esther is informed of, of what's going on with Mordecai, it says she's deeply distressed. I mean, this is the kind of behavior that draws unwanted attention, the, the kind of behavior that threatened the secret she was instructed by Mordecai to, to protect. Up to this point, Esther was, was, was guarding a secret. It was her identity. It was her, her Jewishness. All these years, maybe five years, six years now, as the queen of Persia, she hadn't been found out. Her relationship with Mordecai had remained veiled. It, um, but this, this was just the kind of thing that would threaten all of that. She immediately tries to handle the situation. So, so get, him some, get him some clothes. I mean, clean him up. Verse 5 reveals something interesting. Did you catch it? She wants to know what this is and why this is. Esther is completely unaware of what's going on. She's unaware of what the rest of the capital city and by this time that the kingdom knows. I mean, she's living in a bubble. She's inside the palace. She's unaware of the real life going on out there. It's not to say that she hadn't had her share of real life. I mean, she certainly had. I mean, like I said, she's a foreigner. She was an orphan or her people had been exiled, and, and then she'd remained in exile, which means that she'd become estranged from them, and through no choice of her own. She'd been swept up into the harem of the Persian king who was trying to replace a wife and find a queen. But in many ways, all that was behind her now. I mean, her life wasn't perfect, but it was comfortable. I mean, she was settled in as far as the world goes. I mean, she had everything that she could ever want. And all that was about to change. All that was being threatened. See, I'd say this morning, the truth is that Esther's situation is not all that unique. Oh, we don't find ourselves at the end of hardship, usually living in a palace but we can relate. She was where she never expected to be. Probably this wasn't what she dreamed of as, as a little girl. I mean, her heroes were, were Sarah and Hannah and Ruth. I mean, the women of her faith. And she would have imagined having children with her husband, maybe even returning to the land of her people, the, the promised land. But her life hadn't turned out that way. I mean, she'd survived. She forged a life. It was comfortable. I mean, it wasn't perfect, not what she dreamed of, but it was a long way from her days as an orphan. You know, we spend an incredible amount of energy. We will. We will spend an incredible amount of energy to protect what is comfortable in our life. I mean, we go to great lengths to hold on to the life that we've worked so hard to get. And listen, we know it's not, it's not perfect, but there's a security that comes with comfort. I mean, we work so hard to keep everything that might threaten at arm's length, even if the life that we're protecting is miles apart from who we really are, who we know that we are. See, I think Esther felt real danger of being found out for who she really was. And if that happened, 
her palace life would begin to unravel. Now, listen, I'm not trying to be hard on Esther. I'm just wanting us to step into her shoes for a minute. I mean, I want us to be drawn into the story and then realize to some degree we find ourselves wearing the same shoes. Well, the, the palace bubble that Esther's been in is about to get popped. Look at verse 6. Hathas went out to Mordecai in the same, or in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasury for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathach went out and told Esther what Mordecai had said. It's Mordecai, he relays the whole situation. You see just how well Mordecai is connected here. I mean, he tells Hathach the whole story, and not just what was written in the decree, but, but what's going on um, you know, out in all of the kingdom. Mordecai even knows the details of the conversation that took place behind closed doors. See, Mordecai tells the story of the conversation that Haman has with King Xerxes, and then he provides him a copy of the decree that was issued in the name of the king. A careful reading of chapter 3 reveals that what Haman has accomplished in his plot against the Jews, Haman is an evil genius. What we'll see in the next chapter is where it'll be important. But, but Haman, he, he, he made a case to King Xerxes. And he, he talks about the threat of a group of people that are living among the Persians. But he never really tells the king who these people are. It'll be revealed actually in the next chapter that, that Xerxes or chapters, Xerxes never, never knew that this were the Jews that he was talking about. Secondly, Haman, he, he was spinning and manipulating words when he spoke to the king because he spoke of the destruction of the people. Now, here's some boring Hebrew for you, but if you took the word for destruction and you pronounced it alongside the word for enslavement in the Hebrew, they're homonyms. They sound almost exactly the same. You see, there's a good chance what Haman was doing is he was leading the king to believe he was going to enslave the people, which means he would change their status, he would take away their rights, he, he would put them under the thumb of the empire. But in the written decree, written by Haman in the name of the king, that was crystal clear. And it created confusion in the streets of the capital, it created anguish in the Jews of the kingdom. But there was ignorance inside the walls of the palace. See, Haman veiled his true intentions to the king. And in the process, what we find, he's manipulating, he's deceiving him to, to gain the power he needs to order the execution, the, the genocide of the people who are his enemies. Now listen, that doesn't absolve, absolve the king. He, he may be deceived, but he's not innocent. It's just further evidence that his power... It's just an illusion. Well, Mordecai's plea, maybe his command, 
to Esther. Go and plead with the king on behalf of her people. He's asking her to forsake her anonymity, to, to lay it all on the line. I mean, she's being called to link her fate with the fate of her people. Look at what she says in verse 10. Then Esther spoke to Hathach and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except to the one whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I've not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. So Hawthorne wants us to feel this. I mean, this is an incredible situation. I mean, we're drawn into, this is real personal danger that she's in. I mean, these are the rules of the game. This is how it worked. And with all that Mordecai could have known from his sources, he likely would not have known that the queen had been shunned for the last month. We're to feel here that Esther's vulnerable. Her status is insecure. She's being faced with risking everything, risking her life. Listen, the memory of Queen Vashti's fate is not easily forgotten. But notice here how Mordecai is going to answer. Look at verse 13. It says this, Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. Now, I think he's going to flex here for a minute, all right? He wants this little girl that he raised to do what he wants to, her, him to do. He says, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you'll escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows? whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. This is the heart of the story. Probably the most famous verses in this book, and it really becomes the defining moment for these characters. See, what Mordecai is doing here alongside everything else that he's doing there. What Mordecai's doing is he's doing theology. I mean, in some ways, he is. He's desperate. He's, he's flexing. He's, he's laying it on the line for Esther. But, but don't miss his incredible insight in the midst of his deep grief. Esther, up to this point, our lives have felt like a puzzle, haven't they? I mean, there have been more questions than answers, more hardships than there have been hope. Your parents died. I took you in to raise you. And for so long, it all seemed so unfair. And Mordecai's doing theology here. And what he's confessing is that the puzzle of life is, in fact, the providence of God. What if all this has been for a reason? But what if it's all been for a purpose? Instead of blind fate and random hardship and needless suffering, what if all of this has been ordained? What if all of this is part of some bigger picture, a plan that we could have never understood? 
bigger picture we could have never fully seen. Esther, who knows? Maybe all this has been exactly how it was supposed to be. Who knows whether or not you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. So while it's not explicitly said, I'll tell you what it is. It is evidence of a statement of faith. Maybe not strong faith, but faith. And where there's faith, we find it as a gift from God. Notice, Esther, if you're silent, maybe you'll survive, maybe you won't. But if you keep silent, relief and deliverance will come. It's interesting to note that those are words used to speak of what God does. But Esther is no accident. I believe there's a reason to all of this, and there's been a purpose all along, and those are powerful words. See, when you have a theology that God is sovereign, that the theology is the foundation of your life, it's incredibly freeing, it's incredibly comforting. I mean, Mordecai, maybe he's never articulated these things before, but in this moment of crisis, it's drawn to the surface, and, and, and then suffering, I think, often draws our beliefs to the surface. Suffering reveals what's the foundation of your life. And what lies at the foundation of your life? Who, who, who God is? Oh, that can be so liberating. It frees you to let go of everything you've been clinging to. Strips away all the facade and all the lesser things that we've put our hope in. Frees us to truly see that our life's not our own and our life belongs to another. Our life is God's. And God can be trusted no matter what. And suffering has a way of revealing that actually he's been there all along. Well, notice the effect on Esther. Verse 15, when then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold fast on my behalf, or, and, and hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. And my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Four things real quick. Esther knows what she must do, but she knows that she cannot do it alone. She must have a community of people that support her. We are not built to do what we are called to do all alone. Secondly, she is claiming her people as her own. And in doing that, you know what she's doing? She's embracing who she is. Thirdly, she's seeing awaken in her an uncommon bravery, maybe a strength she didn't even know she had. And fourthly, what you find, she is resolute. She, she is changed. 
She's truly a queen. However else she may have viewed herself, she is embracing who she is. She is embracing where she is. She has come to terms. She's at peace with who she is and where God has placed her. In fact, the queen is taking on the role of a general. She's ready for the battle before her. If I perish, I perish. Wow. Freeing words. Notice verse 17. Mordecai is no longer telling her what to do. He's following her lead. Esther is commanding. There's a peace that, that brings strength. So what are we witnessing here? I think we're witnessing in this story. I think we're being drawn into the story so that we can up close and and personal witness Esther's faith in the unseen God who has been there all along. Now, as we close, I need to make sure I clarify something. The, the, the hope of the message, the, the rainbow, it's not go and be Esther, okay? You go and have her courage. Go out from here in her strength. I would be failing you as a pastor if I did that. Ultimately, you can't. There's no, you know, there's a good chance you've already tried that. You leave here and you try to go in Esther's strength, it'll crush you. You can't live up to that, not not for very long at least. But Esther points us to something greater. Ultimately, Esther's not the hero of this story. The hero of this story powerfully, graciously, lovingly includes Esther in what he is doing, but the hero's not Esther. We need a greater Savior. We need an infinitely an infinitely powerful Savior. See, what Esther does is she points uh, some 500 years into the future for when that Savior would come. See, Jesus is the hero. He's the true hero. He's the true Savior. God the Father sent His Son to take on our weakness to take to himself our suffering and our pain and our sin. And Esther may have risked her life, but Jesus gave his life and he knew that he would. Jesus is delivered unto death. He gave his life for years. He identified with us, claimed us as his own so that we could become his See, when you trust him, when you, when you find your, uh, when your faith finds its, its solid ground in the saving work of Jesus and on the cross, it's, it's, it's transformative. Not because you can muster some strength and some courage, but because when you trust in him, you are in Christ. You belong to him. He's your strength. He's your courage. He's your hope. He's your life. It's only the foundation of faith in Jesus 
that allows you to say, you know what, if I perish, I perish. My hope is not in this world. It's in the Savior of this world. If you would, would you bow with me? Let's pray. Father, you have been gracious to us this morning. We have gathered. And while we have many times been thankful to gather, Father, we're uniquely thankful this morning. We're reminded that we aren't built to do any of the things you've called us to do alone. Not our marriage, not our parenting, not our friendships, not our work, not our service, not our faith in you. We desperately need one another. Father, we're also reminded this morning that you identified with us so that we, we can claim you. We can become who we are because of your son, Jesus. Father, I pray we wouldn't walk out of here in our own courage and our own strength. I pray that we'd walk out of here with a faith deepened and kindled a trust unwavering in the true hero, the one who is our Savior. And so, Father, that's how we pray. In the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit.